have this uh, opportunity to say a few words this morning, uh, which is great uh, pleasure for me in one way, of course, uh, acutely awkward in another way, because <laughs> uh, I think that for many people on retreats, one of the great problems is that, that one gets locked into one's own personal noise, inner noise, outer noise, historical circumstances, traumas, fears, hopes, virtues, and so on, and one fails to appreciate the, the true spiritual quality of what one is doing. And we spend so much time trying to iron out and sort out and straighten out all of the crinkles and wrinkles in our personal circumstances that come up, that we constantly look the wrong way. We're looking for awakening or liberation or the, the object of our goal, but we're, we're looking hard, we're looking intensely, but so often we're looking in the wrong direction, in the wrong place. And we fail to appreciate what we already are, what we already uh, have, what can't be grasped and needn't be held, the very essence of our being. So my experience coming here, uh, being here, not knowing anybody here, sitting in silence <laughs> with uh, people here, is to, is to feel a great sense of, of uplift and support and gladness. Because what is most tangible when you don't talk to anybody, and when you don't know anybody, and you don't have any personal uh, relationships going, is you begin to, to see past all that stuff, in other people and in yourself, you begin to appreciate the quality of it, just the human endeavor, the human aspiration. What it takes when you come to think of it to give up so much, including one's right to speak, one's ability to control circumstances, to come to a strange country, to live under some uh, discipline and in rather exacting circumstances. And to do this willingly, and uh, patiently, um, and the result, if one actually attunes to that, to that human aspiration, is a, a great sense of gladness, joyfulness, and contentment. To learn to appreciate what we really are, rather than to be lost in all of the the rambling circumstances that flitter through our minds. This, I suggest, is um, what we are here to do, to awaken to. And when we begin to hear it and think it, we, we want to know, how do I do that? How do I learn to deepen the appreciation of my life? To, to deepen the quality of it, either for my own welfare or for the wealth of others? How do I learn to, what do I have to do in order to become that fully sensitized being? And uh, for the many paths to try to do this, uh, insight meditation is what we are calling this. But in the, today's talk, I'd like to give examples, some examples of what, of, of life situations, 
of how to use um, life situations to also bring that around. Because what uh, we hear from teachers is that, of course, you do this meditation technique, but that's not it, is it? It doesn't do it. You don't get it. And you think, why are we doing it? And like you said, I began practicing meditation about um, 16 years ago. And uh, of course, with meditation, you do get some kind of immediate payoff. You get a feeling of some calm and, and a, a slight uh, warmth, warm-heartedness, a slight sense of, of connectedness, just a, a refined pleasure that you get, say, with watching the breath or with calming down or with living in a composed way. You do get this kind of payoff. You think, oh, I see. So the first you get this, and you think, right, well, if you keep going, it will get better, won't it? This is, this is the, the way the mind works. You know, you've got the aperitif, something to whet the appetite, some calm, sense of composure and balance. Right, well, you do it more, harder, stronger, then it must get better. And this is the attitude that uh, corrupts uh, our life. Because when we begin, we have that beginner's mind, where actually what we're doing, most profoundly, is we're not doing. We are opening to it. We, we don't know how to do it. And something in us has to stop and listen and wake up. When we first begin to meditate, we are in a don't know, no control position. And from that position, we begin to experience some sense of joy, and then immediately the control knowing mind comes back and says, Oh, I see how you do it. Now let's do it some more. <laughs> and the lie that the mind tells us is that I have done it. That it was mine. That I did it in the first place. Through my special skills and in earnest endeavor, I did it, I got these results. Now I'm going to do some more and get the final big apple. <laughs> you probably by now, three or four days in, uh, it seems to be quite a common experience for all of us, is that this particular quality of mind, the I'm going to do it this time, this is it, over the top, you know, the big push, lasts for a certain period of days, and then unless you're extremely strong-willed and stubborn, by about three or four days you begin to realize I'm not going to do it. <laughs> the pit starts to open. I'm not going to, I can't control it. I'm not going to handle it. Help. And then you think another seven days. What can go of this? And uh, if you watch closely and you actually allow yourself to go to trust the retreat and the situation of the retreat and to be along with it, you go through this seemingly necessary trough of despair until the mind has stopped trying to hold it and make it and do it and has given up. And then we go back to the, well, I'm all right for this moment. And suddenly when one stops the, or when the, that feverish attitude that we will do and have and become ceases, this is all right. There's pain in the body, but yeah. And it's not wonderful, but yeah. They don't beat you here. And, 
and there can be a profound awakening to an all rightness behind all of these circumstances of our mind. I mean, and we begin to see that the real problem is the mind that is controlling is controlling having made and continuing to make certain judgments. It's like if you're driving a car, if you're on the bridge of a ship, you have to keep saying left hand down, right hand down, this way, that way, slow, fast, and so on. And this is the way we seem to be. We seem to live up here in our heads, saying left, right leg, move, do this today, do this tomorrow, this will give you that result. We have the skipper up on top, and we don't realize that he's twirling the wheel, but it's not actually connected to the engine. <laughs> Life is going on. The mosquitoes come and go, the sun rises and sets, the temperatures come and go, we get cold, we feel sick, we feel happy, we feel sad, we feel tired. And none of it has been the responsibility of this hijacker up top saying, I'm doing it, it's all mine, we'll soon get there, trust me, here I go again. And did you see what I did then? <laughs> And so, in some way, we have to have a situation that we can trust in enough to be able to realize the truth that, that actually our whole life, and not just this retreat, is a no-control situation. There never has been a final control. There never will be a final control. We are born. I didn't, I didn't birth me. We breathe. I do not breathe me. This organic life continues doing its awkward and embarrassing things on occasions, which I have to take extreme care to do in private. <laughs> and one day it will die me. And if we don't wake up to that, then our death moment, as well as our life moment, is going to be in a state of extreme panic and crisis about how can I do it? How shall I do it? How will I make it? What's it mean to me? Now, this path is its very simple, but it's not easy, because our habits are so ingrained. So, what uh, one finds is that you generally have to keep having that faith and trust to put yourself into situations that you can trust, and are there to provide you with enough attentiveness to witness the truth of what's happening to witness the distinct difference between the mind, the thinking, judging mind that's controlling and saying this is right, this is wrong, this should be, this shouldn't be, and the actuality. And then it's begin to be in a situation where we can attend to the actuality, gradually our sense of lineage changes, our sense of relationship changes from being associated with the thinking, judging mind to being associated with truth. And then uh, the more that we practice, we begin to learn to listen with some lightness and humor to this hijacker mind, this uh, captain on the bridge, and to learn to live in peace with it. Because it, there are, of course, in relative senses, there are, there are relatively, there are controlled situations. There are skills that we can adopt. There are things that we can do but for ultimate truth and for awakening, we can't do it. It has to happen through us. Now, um, I have come here 
on, on part of my of a walking pilgrimage that I've undertaken with my friend Nick, Nick Scott. And we have walked from Lumbini in Nepal to this place, encountering many adventures experiences internally and externally along the way, which I won't go into because it would take up uh, almost all of the day <laughs> to do so. But I would like to bring up for reflection that uh, metaphor, if you like, and in our case, uh, quite a reality of the pilgrimage as being what we are all undertaking. The, the example of the relationship between an ultimate no-control situation and relative degrees of judgment and control and decision-making going on. This particular pilgrimage has been very uh, helpful for me because it was completely out of my control. I didn't decide to do it. Nick was the progenitor of this thing. And very wisely, having set it up, he then immediately, uh, to the best of his ability, handed over control. He went to my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, and said, I would like to go on a pilgrimage to India. I think it would do me good, Bunty. <laughs> I need this kind of experience. And uh, I feel I would like to, to uh, pay my respects, express gratitude to the country where I learned to meditate in. And... What I would like to do, because uh, he's also someone who, who has been meditating for many years, is, I don't think he put it this way, but he said, I'd like to take a monk along. <laughs> I'd like to often take a monk along, because uh, Nick, being a very good friend, faithful supporter, has developed a relationship with monks whereby he can use them <laughs> as something to hand over control to. <laughs> And of course, this is, strange enough, this is a rare thing. Because when you hand over control to a monk, you know for a start that a monk, well, he knows uh, that most of our monks are basically gentle beings. Uh, they, are, they have a good degree of ethical responsibility. They often haven't got a clue what's going on, so <laughs> you can generally find ways to manipulate them into doing things you want them to do. <laughs> But essentially, they, they do provide some way in which you feel there's something there that you are following behind, and you are, you are, you've got something that can keep you in this no-control situation of looking at your desires and your wishes and your rationalizing and your judging mind about, we don't need this and I want that and all of this stuff. So he did this. And then uh, Ajahn Sumedho said uh, one morning to me, uh, Nick Scott has offered to take a monk on pilgrimage in India. So I thought, oh, that's nice. I wonder who it would take. <laughs> so he said, we thought you might like to go. Oh. <laughs> of course, the mind goes into this <laughs> mystical experiences. Except I have enough street wisdom to know just that, that whenever your mind moves in that way, the mystical experiences are mostly going to be things like dysentery and <laughs> hanging around waiting nine hours for a train and you know all that kind of mess up. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we arrived and we've been going along ever since. And uh, for both of us, it's been in our own ways uh, 
because of being in India and being out on the road and living in a very um, insecure way, uh, very helpful. Because we've had to, we have a certain amount of control and we have our discipline. We have made certain vows as to what standard of ethical conduct we will keep. We have a certain, we felt a certain responsibility to fulfill particular duties. Uh, as pilgrims, we felt that we would like to go to the Buddhist holy places and on the behalf of all the people who have helped us to make offerings, to, uh, to express our gratitude, to, to meditate, to do it for the welfare of other people. This kind of, of um, form, if you like. And that we would walk. We would uh, go on foot. And that we would also, uh, being pilgrims and being those who wish to awaken, try to just open to the situations that arise around us and be with those. Not to be someone who can just uh, snap their fingers and escape from situations. And walking in India, as many of you just did even, um, you know, wherever you travel in India, you find you are very quickly overwhelmed by, by the, the teeming uh, existential whatever it is of India. <laughs> <laughs> and walking, you are actually completely submerged in it. You know, you have no refuge, you have no room. You, you, every time you sit down, you are surrounded by people. We have been um, living on alms food, which means that uh, to an ex the extent to which it's possible without actual loss of life, we have been trying to uh, live on what food may be given to us through people who are acting in generosity. So that what we do is we uh, customarily and this is a uh, basic standard for a Buddhist monk, is we, we, make, we go to a place, such as a village, and then we make ourselves available. We sit and we wait. Or we maybe we chant, or we just sit. And we see, we wait, and we pray. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, some benevolent being will come along and say, Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> this being India, of course, people do that quite, quite, quite quickly. <laughs> what are you doing? But we've also, and this is part of my training, is that as a, as a, a Buddhist monk, one can't demand anything. This is part of the, the game of it. This is part of the, the no control game of it. You can't say, oh, I'm really glad you came along, you know. <laughs> I'm starving. <laughs> What about a bit of food? <laughs> you say, oh, I, I'm from England, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm going there, yes. And, uh, and you wait until they say something like, uh, have you eaten or would you like to eat? <laughs> and then, of course, you can say, uh, well, we haven't eaten today. Uh, that would be very nice. But, of course, we can't eat afternoon. So if it's got to 10 to 12 by the time they've asked this question, <laughs> you can imagine it's a certain amount of tension. <laughs> is for real. This is not like meditation game. This is not waiting for the bell to ring. This is like, if I don't get this, <laughs> I'm going to be hungry and so on. And very, very rarely, we have actually, we have gone without. And um, this has been remarkably rare, actually. But in fact, I appreciated that also, because going without keeps you awake to not taking it for granted, to not feeling that some way that 
you can swing it, but if you just sit there looking cute, somebody will come along. Because eventually your mind starts to learn, you know, if you just sort of sit there looking tired, maybe. It worked yesterday, you know? <laughs> and you realize that that has to go to it, has to be open, otherwise, what's the point of living? To eat? Are we just sitting here to put food in these bodies and on and on until we die? Or isn't there something that actually, even the mechanics of, of eating and experiencing life, just this ordinary organic experience can bring us to out of demand, out of control, out of the feeling that we own and have to have, and into a state of openness. And for that one is prepared to put up with a bit of hunger, put up with a bit of pain, put up with a bit of discomfort, and this, of course, is what you're doing. So I'm just uh, reminding. But there is no reason at all why you should not suffer. There is no reason at all why you, your, your experience should be completely blissful. There is nothing wrong with it being painful with it being awkward. The awkwardness and the pain of it is something that as you contemplate it more thoroughly, you will begin to actually even appreciate that this is a sign of your extreme sincerity and your extreme quality of aspiration and goodness that you should be pleased with and proud of. There is a kind of honour, even a dignity in suffering when you willingly or semi-willingly <laughs> put yourself into a situation and you say, I will not move past this. Even at what cost I have to pay, this will be my offering. This will be my way of offering myself, my body, my mind, my uh, conditioning to the truth. And when we can do that, we begin to give up the feeling that life should offer us anything at all. And then when we have done that, we begin to appreciate what has been offered to us. We have these marvellous awareness minds. From the moment we've been born until now, we've been aware, constantly aware. We've been aware of confusion and pain and happiness and joy and love. But we have been aware. What is that? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense as just being some psychological or physiological process. It's not a personal conditioning, is it? I mean, you're not the same person as you were when you were three months old. It's not about being born in a particular country. It's not about being male or female. It's not about acquiring any talents or virtues. It is your basic birthright, that which you came here, you were born in order to realize what you already are. And yet, the journey to that is an arduous pilgrimage. So, in, in, in our pilgrimage, we have, of course, experienced many things, but finally, the experiences, quaint, bizarre, tragic, and humorous, are, by the way, the main thing is that uh, we have learnt not to have experience, but to allow experience to pass through us and to humbly accept experience as it comes and to not expect or demand. To live life openly and with no future. In a few hours we will walk off somewhere. 
Um, we generally work it out. Nick has the maps and, the, and the, some sort of sense of vague, it's out there, that way, Bunty. <laughs> and uh, I generally don't know, I've got a few names, and then we just start walking. And of course, as you very well know, the map and the name do not relate to what is actually going to happen in a day. <laughs> so we walk off into that with a sense of clarity and consciousness and right effort to use the directing and controlling system of the mind to put ourselves into a situation of no control. Where we have to let go because we can't handle the language, we haven't got resources, we haven't got the friends, we don't have a shelter, we don't have food, we, we don't know how to cope, we don't know if we can put up with it, we might get sick, we might get cold, we might get beaten, all these kinds of things. And, uh, but in the immediacy of that openness, it's all worthwhile. The old story that you may know, and as I don't mind repeating because actually I'm not here to say anything new, I'm just here to touch upon points that I hope resonate for you with what you already know or are uh, awakened to, is of the, the man who is uh, being was it chased by a tiger, comes to the edge of a cliff, there's a tiger behind him, cliff in front of him, he no choice, he jumps over the cliff and he sees the roots. He hangs onto these roots. Uh, the tiger up above, he looks down, there's a roaring torrent down there, he's hanging onto the roots. And he sees two mice come out of their hole and start nibbling <laughs> through the roots. And he's holding on to it. Over the other side, he sees this rather exquisite. Uh, bush with these beautiful fruit on it. And as the mice are nibbling through this uh, root, he reaches his hand out, plucks one of these fruit, and tastes it. Most exquisite savour. And this is what uh, this kind of metaphor is for what the beauty of life in the moment actually is about. In fact, we are all hanging on to roots that are being nibbled through, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, may, we may last a day, hopefully. But the one thing we can be certain of is that this is a dying system. This runs down. It does not go up. It goes down. We are all hanging on to roots and there is no way out except death. But because of that, if we fully accept that, we begin to let go of the future and the trying to get out of it, and we begin to instead accept and open and appreciate the immediacy of the moment. Just looking at it as because uh, death always seems to us a long way off, doesn't it? Look at the context of the retreat. We are committed. We could. You know, you could chicken out and run away, but somehow, you know, unless it really gets really bad, the whole sense of, of personal integrity can't handle that one. We can't go forward, we're not making progress. 
we can't escape, we can't get out, then we can't just kind of crash out because there's 100 people around and you know, we can't go forward, we can't go back, we can't stand still, we can't get anything, we can't seem to get rid of things. What do we do? We begin instead to accept this presence of this unsatisfactory quality of life and begin to turn our view around. Who is it who is experiencing this? And this is where the, uh, the true fruit of Dhamma is. In our pilgrimage we have also practiced a, a strong degree of devotion. Uh, something that meant very little to me when I began to practice meditation. In fact, it was because of my complete absence of it that I was more or less forced into, into the more rational uh, insight meditation method. I didn't have any kind of faith. I couldn't worship anything. I didn't have any sense of God or anything like that to pick me up. So I was much more interested in direct seeing for myself. And yet, uh, over time, one has begun to realize that uh, the whole way of seeing can be enhanced by opening the receptivity of the mind in devotion. It's not just a matter of concentrating and looking hard at something, it's how you look. And when you're looking at, it's still in some way looking for, looking for the answer, looking for the end, looking for the way out, looking for the way to deal with something which is just another way of talking about suppression, isn't it? How can I deal with doubt? It means, how can I cut it out? How can I squash it? How can I, you know, we talk about sort of working with our problems. It means, I want to work with them, i.e. <laughs> get rid of them. And all of these euphemisms that one uses as part of the wriggling to basically deny the unsatisfactoriness of sensory life. What about if we actually try devoting ourselves to it? Treating body, treating even the nattering of the mind, and life here, the form of the retreat, the teachers, the manager, the whole situation, is something that we, that we honour. We honour it not because it gratifies us, not because by, by doing that it will, it will help us out, it will kind of, if we say nice things to our body, it will be nice back, but because in the very act of giving ourselves, of honouring, of having that devotional sense, the demanding of the mind stops, the grasping stops, and the, the sense of conflict stops. And we begin to experience a, a proper relationship with this sensory predicament of birth and death, comings and goings, and uh, situations that we can't control. And this is what we've been doing in our pilgrimage. Constantly, if you like, using the metaphor of bowing to India. Not believing in it, not say saying it's right, but allowing it to enter into us 
keeping ourselves open to it, allowing its oddness and its awkwardness and its uncomfortableness to enter into us and to to enter into a proper relationship of no conflict. To go back to, and I'll just finish with this uh, one uh, small story here that may relate uh, more exactly to a common experience that you will have, one of physical pain. Many years ago I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. That's it. I think, right, just be with the pain, that'll, that'll do it. You know, being with pain. Being with the pain. <laughs> Not working, you know. <laughs> or maybe, you know, let's be sent by probably to do some yoga. <laughs> right, got it. Right, that's it now. Oh, no. Cushion. One cushion, two cushions, three cushions. <laughs> Maybe some sort of slight angling, like slightly towards the right buttock, left buttock. <laughs> uh-uh. Okay. Doc, you've got to help me, chiropractor. <laughs> Must be the posture. Perhaps I'd sit with a book on my head. Perhaps I'm leaning back, leaning forward. <coughs> Nothing. Five years. That's his, uh... <laughs> an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain is hurts and I don't like it. Very obvious truth. Yet, yet I hadn't actually come to that. I hadn't actually accepted what one glosses over in a word, in a few words, I don't like pain. Instead I acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to say, well you should like pain, pain is good for you. Uh, you know, the pain is bad, make it go away, but I hadn't really looked into, I do not like. And then one day, uh, I was sitting in meditation, and I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours, and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle. Why did you say that? Why five hours? You know? <laughs> After all, middle way, and then uh, you know, the hours are going by, three, three hours, one minute. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> After about four or so hours, I was pain, I just got, my mind had been through all the various, you know, circuit, so be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. Kill it. <laughs> and it uh, came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally, the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, you know, ignorance does get tired after a while. I had to take a break from being ignorant. And so I began, instead of ignoring it and repressing it, to actually open to it without the, let's open to it and make it go away. Well, let's open to it, and they'll make me go into some kind of cosmic space, which is, oh, right. <laughs> and then I began to see this sensation throbbing away, and it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing experience, tearing, tearing experience. And then, because of the, the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that, and then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on. 
resistance in this. And then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body, bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it, it shouldn't happen to me, why is it happening to me, what did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful, pain, go away. This kind of moaning, wheedling mind. And as I contemplate just my relationship to this sensation, it became clear that there was nothing to do I could do with the sensation, but I could stop beating it with my mind. And I began to have this experience of deep regret for all of the beatings and the kickings that, that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt that this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved, they had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this, this vision arose in my mind of this, this dog, kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me, saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? And I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. And in my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and say, please forgive me. And in this, in this, this all happened in a, a very few moments. This creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. <laughs> we were dancing. We were on the post. <laughs> And then the whole thing just kind of exploded, very gently. And then the, the pain seemed to disappear. It seemed to have said, thank you, finally, I've been knocking on the door for five years. <laughs> thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And that once you open to, the lesson's been learned, business is finished. Now, as soon as I say that, I realised people would think, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll have to spend five years of thinking, it doesn't work, I don't see why. <laughs> because the truth is, in fact, there is no real learning on this intellectual level, is there? There is only a kind of learning that, that we have to have that humility to recognise that really the learning point is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control and the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going past the area of, no, of where you, you can't control it anymore and trust. And for me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. That is not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is, to live in accordance with truth, to honour truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. So, uh, hope for you, this uh, retreat will, if nothing else, bring you to recognise the where control ends, and what lies beyond that for you. Because this, what lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of deathlessness.
joy of the boundless, the mysterious, the vastness of life. So I'll just say those words for you today, and uh, if you have any questions or you'd like to um, put anything back to me, I'll be very pleased to respond.